0: I'm going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. This is God's Word. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things... Thus all these things came into being declares the Lord but to this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word let's pray together gracious heavenly father we thank you so much for the great reality that lord this morning we do not gather to bring attention to ourselves we gather to bring attention to you because you are worthy of our worship, you are worthy of our praise, you are worthy of our adoration. Father, we thank you for the fact that, Lord, this morning your people all over the world, get having this opportunity to gather, to lift up your name in the light of the great redemption that you've accomplished in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you for the fact that, Father, your people, even in persecuted countries all over the world, have an opportunity to, Lord, hear your word even underground in places where your name is opposed, where explicitly they are persecuted and attacked for their faith. Thank you for the courage that you grant them. And I pray that we who are, Lord, in a still free country here in America, where we have the opportunity to worship you corporately, that we would do it in a way that honors you and that glorifies your great name. Father, this morning, we want to be reminded of those who are hurting amongst us, those who are, Lord, hurting emotionally, spiritually, those who are in great need of comfort and encouragement. Father, I just pray that you would continue to, Lord, uh, remind us of the fact that you are ever before us and ever near us. We think of 1 Peter chapter 5, which says that we should cast our anxieties upon you because you care for us, O oh, Lord, May you continue to cause us, as in the midst of our trials and difficulties, to draw near to you, our great God, that you might continue to strengthen us and sanctify us and make us more and more like Jesus. Father, be with us this morning as we open up your word now, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. At this point, we are dismissing our little ones. So if you have some little ones that are needing to head off to Sunday school, go ahead and and uh, dismiss them now, and we'll see you later, kiddos. Well, it is a privilege, brethren, to be with you. Um, just, uh, my, this is my first Sunday morning officially, well, actually, second as your senior pastor. And again, we're so grateful and thankful for the privilege of serving here at um, Eastridge Baptist Church. And even just thinking back of the great journey that we've been on mutually, right? Uh, Both sides just praying and discerning the will of God. It's amazing that we're actually here, and it's my privilege to open up God's Word uh, this morning in Isaiah chapter 66, verses one and two. Today we begin a summer series that I've titled a mission-focused church. I'm super excited about this series. I think it's going to be a very profitable and useful series for us as a congregation, as and as individuals, as families. It's a great opportunity for us to pause this summer and to sort of um, recalibrate, I might say, and refocus our attention on that which is most important, that which should consume our time and our resources and our efforts here in this wicked and perverse world in which we are living. Amen? This world is not getting any better, and even in the Pacific Northwest, things are not getting any better But in the midst of that, God has called us to be a witness and a testimony for His glory and to be salt and light. That's why we are here. We are here that He might use us to bring glory to His great name, to exalt, lift up the name of Jesus as we uh, reflected upon that reality last Sunday night when we were together. So here in Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 and 2, this is where we want to start because this is a passage that really begins to shape, recalibrate Refocus our perspective on an attention on what should be of supreme importance. You know, the older that I get, the worse that my vision seems to get. How many of you can identify with that this morning? Oh yeah. How many of us have not seen and have not experienced a deteriorating vision over the years, right? Um, I can identify with that totally. A year ago or so in fact, I ordered my first pair of bifocals. Can you believe that? So young and already going downhill so fast, right? Some of you have already had those for a number of years. But even with those, uh, bi- these bifocals here, my vision continues to be impaired. It continues to be very, very blurry at times. It's kind of it's a little bit of a difficult process to have to walk through. And I know that some of you can say, ah, young and you don't know what you're talking about. I'll tell you in 10, 20, 30 years what impaired vision looks like right or feels like you know there's a parallel there's a parallel in the spiritual realm where our spiritual vision can also suffer from the same oftentimes we fail to see things clearly in the spiritual aspect of the christian life and thus we need perspective don't we we need perspective perspective is is Super important in the Christian life and super important for us as a collective local church here at Eastridge. Perspective has to do with your viewpoint, the lenses through which you see life, your perspective. And when it comes to the Christian life, above all, we need clarity of perspective, brethren, with respect to how we think about God and how we think about ourselves. We need to see God as He is and we need to see ourselves accurately as well why is this so important because we have a if we have an, an inaccurate understanding of god and a skewed understanding of ourselves then we will not carry out our mission in the way that god has designed us to carry it out because our spiritual vision is impaired our spiritual vision is blurry and this is why i want us to begin our summer long study on what it means to be a mission focused church And I want us to begin here with the right perspective that we ought to have as individuals and collectively as a local body. You see, there's a clear purpose for why we are here as Christians. And this summer, we're going to get an opportunity to unpack what this looks like, this mission-focused reality. Because contrary to how many Christians live aimless and confused and sort of uh, purposeless, God has not left it ambiguous or vague as to why you and I are here. So we're going to talk about that purpose. But before we begin to speak of this purpose, it's important to put on the right lenses if we're going to understand our mission and see it clearly and carry it out effectively. And I think Isaiah chapter 66 really helps us. The Israelites were also in desperate need of clarity, of perspective during the time of the divided kingdom. And it was during this time of the divided kingdom that the prophet Isaiah was commissioned to preach specifically to the southern kingdom of Judah. On the one hand, if you think about the historical context then, for Judah, it was a time of great superficial prosperity, of material prosperity. But on the other hand, sadly, it was a time of great spiritual decline under the rulership of five particular kings. And under those five kings... Judah had repeatedly turned her focus away from God and had turned to idols, to false idols that didn't even exist. They rejected Yahweh, the one true God, and went after things and objects that were not to be worshipped. They committed idolatry. They also had not followed God's example of justice and mercy and uprightness but instead had been guilty of injustice and oppression of the most needy of society, such as the widow and the orphan and the poor and the alien and the foreigner. In fact, if you look back with me to chapter 1 of Isaiah, go back there. Chapter 1 and verse 10. Listen to what God says in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs or goats. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Hear that? He says, you know... I don't want your hypocritical worship. I don't want your empty ritualism. God is rebuking Judah here for not being sincere worshipers from the heart and worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. These people at the time professed and did all the right things on the outside, but brethren, they were devoid of heart, devoid of sincere worship before the living God. God says, I'm weary of you. I'm tired of your worthless supposed worship devoid of justice. What does God want? Look at verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. In other words, God God wants holiness and He wants justice. He wants compassion and He wants mercy toward the least of these. He pleads with them in verse 18. Notice, come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord or of Yahweh has spoken. What does God want? He desires holiness from the heart. He wants justice and and mercy. He wants genuine, authentic worship. Sincere praise and adoration from these people. And he even says, doesn't he, essentially, if you will listen to me, I will bless you. If you will listen to me, yes, it glorifies God, but I will bless you. I will do good to you, he says to these people. Well, as we know and we've read our Old Testaments, did they repent? No, they did not repent And thus God's judgment eventually came to pass about a hundred or so years later in 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25, we're told of, of three deportations of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. God judged His people greatly, beloved, for their failure to repent of their lack of genuine worship. And yet, in the book of Isaiah, through all of this, There is this great theme of salvation offered to Israel, of salvation offered to Judah, the southern kingdom in particular. In fact, the outline of Isaiah is very telling, isn't it? The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are God's pronouncement of judgment upon his people if they do not repent. The last 27 chapters of Isaiah have to do with his gracious salvation. We all love Isaiah 53, don't we? That great passage and, and uh, chapter in the Bible, unparalleled in Scripture. Isaiah 53 speaks of, of God's future Messiah who, who is going to come and He's going to be the hope for not only Israel, but to any who put their faith and their trust in the future Messiah. Great chapter of the Bible that we love to meditate upon. And then there is, of course, the latter half of Isaiah 65. Which speaks of this future time known as the the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness will dwell forever. And so note, even in the midst of all of this judgment, the last 27 chapters of Isaiah speak of the great hope found in God's Messiah. We now know, of course, to be the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Our precious Lord and Savior Jesus. Now, as Isaiah comes to a close here in chapter 66, we hear the very words of the Lord, of the one true God. And as God speaks here, we glean powerful words that help clarify our perspective concerning who God is and who we ought to be, brethren, in response to who God is. And this is very crucial that we hear the Word of God here this morning. If you and I want to be, and I know we do, and it's our heart's desire, if you and I want to be mission-focused Christians, in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, we need an accurate picture of God, first and foremost, and an accurate picture of ourselves. We need perspective, brethren, because frankly, some of us have lost a sense of focus as to why you and I are here, if we're honest. If we're sincerely honest before the Lord and before one another, you may be living for many things right now, currently, but not for God's mission. Many other things are occupying your attention. You say, Pastor Kempis, how would I know? If you are wondering, how might you know if this is you? If you've lost focus and perspective, just ask yourself where your time is going. Right now, in the sincerity of your heart, where is your time going? Ask yourself, where are your resources going? Your money, or God's money, really, of which you are a stewardship over, how are you using the property that you have? The house that you have, the cars that you have. How are you using your finances? Are you, build, are you investing into the kingdom of God now and forevermore? Or are you investing into your kingdom with a little K? Ask yourself, where are your, your energies being directed right now? Are you serving Christ and His people? You know, there are many needs here at Eastridge. When your pastors and elders or ministry leaders reach out to you and they say, hey, there's a need in this particular area, do you think to yourself, well, I'll fill it if somebody else fills it? No, you step in there and your energies are directed at, I'm going to use my spiritual gifts and my abilities and my experiences to serve Christ. Is that you this morning? Otherwise, you've lost focus. How about what are you dwelling upon? What are you fixated upon in terms of your thinking Is it on the kingdom of God or is it on the things of this world? Earthly possessions for the sake of just pursuing those. Not because you want to invest them into God's kingdom, into spiritual realities. Honestly, would you say this morning that you're invested into God's mission or your mission with a little M? Or God's mission with a big M? Whose mission are you focused upon this morning? Because for some of us, it may be that we've lost focus. And so that's why we want to talk about this mission-focused reality, not only this morning, but this uh, summer. So where does this mission focus with the right perspective begin for us if we want to be faithful? Let's start here. Okay, If you're taking notes, a right perspective begins with you and I daily contemplating the majesty of God. That's in your outline. Daily contemplate the majesty of God, brethren. And that's going to be our only main point this morning, but there's going to be some subpoints under that, okay? Daily contemplate the majesty of God. If you want to, to see clearly and be energized to be effective in carrying out your mission, we must be people who reflect deeply upon the majesty and the greatness of who God is. How important, brethren, it is for us to be reminded of who God is. Amen? It was A.W. Tozer who once wrote this, quote, What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you, end quote. Isn't that true? In other words, your perspective about God tells the whole story. Who you believe God to be sets the trajectory of your life. By the way, that's true for you young people. Low view of God, little ones, teens, right? Young marrieds, older saints. Low view of God. Listen, that sets the trajectory for your life. Bad decisions. Fearfulness as far as the way that you approach things in life. High view of God. Then you're going to have a Christ-exalting perspective and approach to everything in life. So important. And yet in our fast-paced, media-saturated culture, it's such a challenge, isn't it, for us to stop and pause and contemplate the majesty and the greatness of of God. And in essence, this is what God calls his audience to in this particular passage. I want us to make a few observations pointing to the majesty of God here that we must contemplate. These will be sub points here, okay? First, you and I must contemplate the authority of God. Contemplate the authority of God. Look at verse 1. Very simply, it says, Thus says the Lord. That wording right there, brethren, is loaded. Thus says, or thus saith, in the New King Jimmy, New King James version, right? Thus says, says, or thus saith, the Lord appears hundreds of times, especially in the Old Testament, and intentionally so. If we believe that the sixty-six books of the Bible are inspired by God, Amen, that they are inerrant, infallible. That this is the very Word of God. Every single word and all terminology and language in God's Word is absolutely intentionally written and intentionally worded. And that holds true for thus says the Lord. Because it's a way for, for the authors to emphasize God's very words. Authoritative words that are either directly from God Himself, thus have authority, or they are communicated through His spokesman and have equal authority. Thus says the Lord. Either way, when those words appear on the pages of God's holy word and all of 66 books of the Bible, the implication is that we must listen. That His word is living and true and it is final for all matters of faith and practice. The very word of God. Why is this? Because God has all authority, all power, all might, right? Right? There's that creator-creature distinction in theological circles and conversations. He is the creator. We are the creatures. And when He speaks, we listen. Amen? That's why you're gathered this morning. Because you want to hear the Word of God and you want to respond. And as your affections are moved and awakened all the more to loving Him, you want to respond in action and change. Make changes that exalt Jesus in the power of the Spirit by the guidance of God's Holy Word. So these are words... Here, that our or this terminology has is pointing to the authority of God. By the way, during the Protestant Reformation, for those of you who are great readers of the Protestant Reformation, and you should be, we are all theologians and should all be church historians to some extent or another. The principle of sola scriptura, Scripture alone, was the greatest reaffirmation during the Protestant Reformation. Why do I say that? Because it was based upon the understanding that when God speaks, His Word is final and definitive, brethren. And so it follows, right, that if this is God's Word, then all aspects of my life must be submitted to the Word of God. God doesn't give us suggestions, God doesn't give us opinions, God doesn't give us commands that we take or leave. No. When this wording appears, thus saith the Lord, we respond and listen and are ready and eager to appropriate God's word to our lives. And so, notice, as you read through your Bibles in the Old Testament, man, all terminology is significant, isn't it? We see the majesty of God here in his authority. The second observation I want you to notice is not only the authority of God, but the knowability of God. We must contemplate the knowability of God. The God who speaks here is the God who is knowable. He is the God who reveals himself to his creatures. He's the God who speaks to his creatures, who delights, if we could put it this way, he delights in making himself known to us. Why is this so important? Because what do so many in our culture say? Even here in the Pacific Northwest, I've already had some conversations with non-believers here in the Pacific Northwest, just a couple of them but they were pretty um, reminiscent and pretty much consistent with what I experienced in Southern California. People in our culture say one cannot know God. Or if there is some greater creature out there, some greater being, He certainly isn't the God of the Bible, and He certainly cannot be known. He's subject to our own definition. That's what people say. If there is a greater being out there, He certainly can't be discovered can't be understood, but what does the Bible say? That contrary to that line of thinking, the Bible says that the one true God of the universe is personal, isn't he? He's personal. That it's possible to know him through his divinely inspired word, brethren, and we're here because of that. That it's possible to enter into a personal and living relationship with Him through His Son. That's why he, he speaks here. He wants to make Himself known to the Israelites, to the people of Judah, the southern kingdom in particular. And that is true for us. John 17.3, write that passage down. John 17.3, and this is eternal life, that they might know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know God... Is the essence of eternal life, of 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 receiving from God by His grace, quality and quantity of life, and to have eternal life is to is to know Him, is to know Him. So we must contemplate God's Majesty here, as revealed in His authority, as revealed in His knowability. Thirdly, contemplate God's Majesty as revealed in His uniqueness, as revealed in His uniqueness. You say, where do you get that, Pastor Kempis? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 1. You see that God's name there appears in caps? You see that? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You see that? That title for God signifies God's personal name of Yahweh, His unique name. Yahweh is God's tetragrammaton, as it said. It's His unspeakable, most holy, and most personal name. He is the great I Am. As God told Moses when uh, uh, Moses asked, who do I tell the people the Israelites has sent me? Do you remember what God said to him? Tell them I am who I am has sent me. That name. Yahweh. This name is, is also loaded. Whenever you read the name Yahweh, right away what should come to your mind is this. Eternal existence Eternal presence. Yahweh. Eternal existence. Eternal presence. He's the one who, who has always been. He is the one who is in the present time. And He is the one who eternally will be. Eternal existence. Eternal presence. He has no beginning and no end. Psalm 90 in verse 2 says that He's from everlasting to everlasting God. He's from everlasting to everlasting God. He is eternal. The name also points to God's self sufficiency and to his self existence. Underline the self. That he's self sufficient means that God is enough in himself. No one adds or takes away from God. He is complete in himself. He is self existent, which means that he's dependent on no one for his existence. Each and every one of us are dependent upon God first and foremost. And even as young kids, right from the time that we are born, as babies, we are dependent upon our our parents for our very existence, right? Otherwise, we kill ourselves. Every creature here on earth is dependent upon someone. God is self-sustaining. He doesn't rely upon anyone for His existence. He depends upon no one. He is unique in that way. He's self-existent, self-sufficient. Listen, no one can claim that. No one can. This makes him unique. This makes God the incomparable one, doesn't it? No one matches up to God. No one measures up to the majesty and the grandeur of God. This is the God of Scripture, brethren. This is the God whom we worship this is the one and only true God of the universe. Boy, that's very different than the wimpy figure that people call God in our society, right? This, this God who is warm and fuzzy and cuddly. This God who, is, who makes no claim on people's lives. A God who enables people to remain autonomous and self-ruling individuals. The God of Scripture is far, far different and listen, if that's the kind of God that you worship this morning, a God who is wimpy, a God who makes no claim on your life, a God who allows you to operate autonomously, listen, you're not worshiping the one true God. You may have met a Jesus in the past, but it was, it's not the Jesus of the Bible. You may have met a God in the past, but He's not the God of the Bible if you are living for yourself and not for Him. Because when you know the one true God through Jesus Christ, He makes all claims on your life. There's no easy believism here. There's no, I just put my trust in Jesus, get out of jail free card, and then I live my life however I want. Uh Uh-uh. His word is final for all matters of salvation and sanctification. But folks in our culture create a God of their own imagination, don't they? A God who is no better than a cosmic genie, who gives them whatever they want. And it's this sinful type of idolatry, brethren, that is at the core of man's rebellion, exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and four-footed animals and crawling creatures, Romans chapter 1 and verse 22, right? And repeatedly, in that context, in light of the fact that people in our generation even Exchange the glory of the incorruptible God. It says that God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. You want to create a God of your own creation? I'm going to plunge you forward. Go all the more. God lets them go. We're seeing that in our culture, aren't we? People don't want to worship the God of the Bible. People don't want to bow the knee to Him because He's got all claims on your life as a creature. You want to go after your own pursuits and your own desires and your own priorities. That's not the God of Scripture. He demands everything from us. People don't worship the one true God, but a distorted, twisted God with a little G who they can control and order around, not the other way around. It's very sad to see. And I hope that that moves us all the more to wanting to share the message of Christ, brethren. That we might not be passive and indifferent to those who are lost in our society. We're watching Romans 1 ever before us. But remember that the whole book of Romans is all about the gospel, that powerful bomb that we have have called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are called to share that gospel with people who are lost. Amen? I hope that you are doing that. And so God's majesty here is seen in His authority, in His knowability, in His uniqueness. A right perspective begins by seeing Him as He is in these particular areas. Fourth, we must contemplate God's majesty as seen in His transcendence. We must contemplate God's majesty as seen in His transcendence. Big word, but all transcendence means is that that God is beyond normal human limitations. God is outside the normal bounds of the physical and material laws of, of nature. He does not bow to the laws of nature. Why? Because He set them in motion, didn't He? And sustains them and controls them. He created The whole universe, including those laws that are unchanging. He's over and above those. He is sustaining those and us. He's outside of those things. He is the indescribable and uncontainable one, as that song of old says, right? Indescribable, uncontainable. He's an awesome God. Just look at His sovereign declaration in verse 1. Notice what He says. Heaven is My throne, He says. And the earth is my footstool. What we have here is, is anthropomorphic language. That's language using imagery that humans can understand. Anthropos, right? Man. Human language. Language that we can understand as his beings. He says, heaven is my throne. And what he means are not, are not just the blue skies that you could see with your eyes if you were to go outside right now, right? Or the uh, overcast, right? skies. <laughs> But there has been a lot of blue skies and a lot of sun. I think that uh, there's some significance there, right? People keep saying, you guys brought the sun with you. No, we didn't, brethren, okay? We didn't. The Lord is controlling all of that. He's not just talking, however, about those skies that we can see when we go outside, is He? He's talking about the vast universe that man has yet to discover even to this present day. Listen, all of the galaxies, all of the stars... All of the planets, all of those grandiose, majestic, angelic entities. He says, they are my throne. I'm over them. I've created them. I sustain them. The same heavens that Psalm 19 proclaims, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands, those heavens. He says, heaven is my throne. He's saying, there's nothing outside of my sovereign reign As high and lofty as the heavens are, I am much greater. I am much more grandiose. I am much more majestic, he says. Heaven is my throne and the earth, it's my footstool. It's the place where I rest my feet when I sit to rule over you, right? People of the world. From his own mouth, God is declaring here that he is so great, so majestic, so immense, that even the earth itself is regarded simply as his footstool. That's how small the earth is and the world is in comparison to the greatness and the majesty of your God, Eastridge. He's great, he's majestic. Back in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, you know the passage. Isaiah catches a glimpse of the grandeur and the transcendence of God, right? And there Isaiah hears the deafening outcry of the angelic hosts declaring about God, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. There's no crevice, no nook that does not declare glory to God in His creation. Three times they cry out, in fact, right? Holy, 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 which means set apart, set apart, set apart. Unique, 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 like no other, like no other, like no other. Incomparable one, incomparable one, incomparable one. That's what holy means. Moral purity and set-apartness. He's the incomparable one. As someone has put it, God is someone of whom none greater can be conceived. I like that. God is someone, with a capital S, Of whom none greater can be conceived. Brethren, this is our God. Amen? These declarations by God should strengthen our our faith so that as you go through trials this morning and you're thinking about the pain that you are suffering, even physically, if you're going through physical, excuse me, trials and emotional trials and trials of a spiritual nature, familial trials, go back and rest upon this God. Take your eyes off by God's grace and in the power of the Spirit of your circumstances, which are continually fluctuating and changing, aren't they? God is unchanging. Thus those metaphors in the Old Testament, He's my rock, He's my fortress, He's my deliverer, He's my ever-present help in time of trouble. All of those metaphors point to the fact that He is the unchangeable one. When life is continually changing for us, God is the unchanging one. He is dependable, right? We can rest in Him. We can cry out to Him. We can cast our burdens upon Him. So that when Satan tempts you to despair, upward I look and see Him there. Amen? We place our faith and our hope in a God of limitless power who who will get us through our trials and our difficulties. God's revelation here concerning Himself should also deepen our love, not only strengthen our faith, but also deepen our love and our affections for Him. Why? So the thing we are driven, brethren, as our affections are moved and awakened within by this greater picture of God and who He is, we are driven all the more and ignited in our worship toward God all the more. Oh, I, I pray and I hope that Eastridge is all the more a singing church. And I know that if Pastor Samuel were in here, he'd be saying amen to that, right? Amen. That we would sing, but not as a... Perf- oh, he is in here. There he is. <laughs> amen, brother. That all the more, rather than about it being a performance, that we would, we would not, not help but be able to sing. That we would exalt Christ because He is worthy. That no matter what's going on in your life and the difficulties and trials you may be going through, all of that, listen, the one thing I know in the morning when I get up on a Sunday morning or every day of my life is that He is worthy to be sought. Amen? God is worthy to be sought. As we see this picture of God, and we contemplate His greatness and His majesty, all the more we should be singing people throughout the week, but also as we gather collectively, especially on a Sunday morning. It should ignite our worship all the more. Now notice that God declares His transcendence by asking two rhetorical questions here that further emphasize His immensity. Look at verse 1. Where then is a house you could build for me, and where is a place that I may rest There were some during those days who fooled themselves into actually thinking that somehow God could be contained or housed in a physical, material location. That was foolishness at its peak. So much so that, do you notice, that God doesn't even take the time to answer the questions, does He? He doesn't even answer the questions. Why? Because they don't even deserve a response. He is the uncontainable one. If God is so great, why would anyone think for a moment that He could be restricted to human or physical structures or that buildings can contain Him? We know now under the New Covenant, right, that the Spirit of God lives in us, doesn't He? We are the temple of God. It's no longer this physical structure which was just a representation visibly of for the people of God of God's presence, But ultimately, all the time, he always wanted worship in spirit and in truth. Now the Spirit of God with a capital S, the third person of the Trinity, dwells within believers by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the temple of the living God. We are those who are to offer him worship in spirit and in truth. So it's foolishness. He doesn't even answer the questions. In fact, there is nothing anyone could provide for God because he owns everything. Everything is derived from him. Look at verse 2. For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord or declares Yahweh. In other words, I'm not impressed by any external physical structures. Why? Because everything originates from me. Everything was created by me. Everything was sustained by me. Ex nihilo. Out of nothing, everything was created by God. We don't have time for this, but I would encourage you to take some time later today or tomorrow morning as you're going through your sermon notes and thinking about how you might apply this sermon to your life and to your family's life, I want you to go back and read Isaiah 40, all right? There's your homework. Read Isaiah 40, especially verses 12 through 17 of Isaiah 40, verse 21, which speak of the, of the boundless and limitless nature of God, that He's sovereign over everything and that He is the uncontainable one. Wonderful chapter, Isaiah 40, especially verses 12 and, and following. This is our God, brethren, and as we rightly see Him for who He is, do you know what this should do for us as well in addition to strengthening our faith, deepening our love, and even our worship being fueled? I think that as we see God for who He is, this should also foster courage and boldness in fulfilling our mission of making disciples. That's why I wanted us to begin here. I think that for for some of us, our God is way too small. Our own imaginations have taken us in a wrong direction. Where we are not defining the God that we worship by the pages of His Holy Word, but you are drinking the Kool-Aid of the culture around you. That we have this powerless God. But when we see God clearly for who He is, this should foster courage and boldness in our evangelism and in our witness. May I ask you this morning, how is that going? If I were to ask for a raise of hands, and I'm not going to do that right now, but in the quietness of your own heart before the Lord, if I were to ask for a raise of hands as to how many of you actually shared your faith this week, how many hands would go up in the air? How about the last two weeks? How about the last month? Have you shared Christ with anyone? How about the last year? Who have you shared Christ with? People in your home who are non-believers? Distant relatives? Neighbors? Co-workers? Right? You see, there are many reasons for why we are not focused on Christ's mission of making disciples beginning with sharing Christ with others as much as we should. There are many reasons. Some Christians are way too sinfully angry with the world and just lack compassion. Let's just say it it the way that it is. You lack compassion. You're more frustrated and put up a flag and say, well, I'm just zealous for the Lord. You may be, but a lot of it, if we're really honest, is we're just sinfully angry. And it's become more about us than the glory of God. Because if it was about the glory of God, then you would want to share Christ with others to see them bow the knee to your God that you claim to glorify in your life, right? Some of us just lack compassion, brethren. are just sinfully angry. Other Christians are simply fearful. Simply fearful. This message helps us, doesn't it? Take your eyes off of what you see as such a hostile opposition and say, whoa, God is way more powerful than this. He has me here for a reason, with a powerful message. Others of us maybe are ill-equipped, feel ill-equipped. I need more training and all of that. And you know what? That's coming. That's coming. We need to be all the more reaching out to our community. We need to be all the more equipped to be faithful evangelists. Even in the midst of our fears and all of that, that's never going to go away. Perhaps others of us are just flat-out rebellious. And just not sharing Christ with anyone. But I really believe that for some of us, we just flat out, brethren, lack faith in God. Again, our God is too small. We think to ourselves, the world is too dark, too horrible, too obstinate. The world is too godless. Amen. Preach it. It is. I would agree with you. It is daunting as we look at society right now. And I would say, obviously, the Pacific Northwest, amen? It's a lot of wickedness, godlessness, hopelessness, idolatry. It is difficult. But listen to me, our God is greater. Our God is stronger, brethren. Take your eyes off of of what seems to be a daunting opposition, and it is. In the flesh, it is. But when we depend upon the Lord by his grace and in the power of the Spirit, by the guidance of his holy word, and proclaim a, a biblical gospel that is healthy, that calls sinners to repentance and faith in the only hope in his name is Jesus, listen to me. God already is performing a victory here, isn't he? Jesus has already delivered the final death blow. It's only a matter of time. He has us here for the purpose of fulfilling our mission, of making disciples. Our God is greater. Be reminded of Romans 1.16, right? the, the, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. In other words, the gospel is mighty to save the worst of sinners. And I'm one of those, brethren. I wouldn't be here were it not for God using someone to share Christ with me and God working in my heart to awaken me from spiritual death. And some of you can attest to the same thing. The gospel is mighty to to save. Do you really believe this? Some of us lack faith in God. We have faith, but it's not in God. It's faith in self, faith in good circumstances, faith in our possessions, faith in our retirement funds, faith in many other things, but it's not faith in God. Even as it pertains to evangelism and a faithful witness to the non-believing world around us. Jeremiah 23.29 Is not my word like fire declares the Lord and like a hammer which shatters a rock. That's a good verse, isn't it? Ooh, I love that verse. Memorize it. You young kids especially. Jeremiah 23.29 Oh brethren, God's word and his gospel are more than able to pierce and penetrate the stoniest of hardened hearts. Do you believe this? You are living testimony of it. The fact that you are here as a sinner saved by grace. I plead with you. Have a right, cultivate and foster and contemplate the majesty of God that it would be something that drives you all the more to faithfully and fruitfully fulfill your mission. We need this. We need this. Leave the results in the hands of our majestic God. Our call, brethren, is simply to be what? Faithful. Faithful to proclaiming that Message And I pray that you and I will be, both individually and collectively as a church, and that we would realize that if we're going to be a mission-focused people, a mission-focused church, then we must have the right perspective. That begins by contemplating the majesty of our great God, especially in the midst of a growingly wicked and perverse generation. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray for us, and then our elders are going to be coming up. And Pastor Paul is going to be leading us in our time of communion, okay? Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, what a reminder of Your awesome majesty. You are a great God, a God worthy to be praised and worshipped no matter what's going on in our life. Oh Lord, awaken in us a greater vision of who You are. We pray that You would help us to be catapulted in the light of who You are all the more, to be people on mission Proclaiming Christ in fulfillment and in obedience of the Great Commission, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.